Welcome to Across the Margin, the podcast. I am your host, Michael Shields, and we've got a great podcast for you today. It is uh, one that focuses its attention on another podcast, a climate accountability podcast called Drilled. Drilled recently launched its third season, and it's entitled The Mad Men of Climate Denial, which focuses on the 100-year history of fossil fuel public relation campaigns and their connection to today's world. The journalist behind this important and entirely eye-opening podcast is Amy Westervelt, who I'm thrilled to feature an interview with in this episode. Drilled is a podcast that counters fossil fuel messaging with storytelling, and its aim is to help people see through and understand the ad campaigns, press releases, and the influence that the fossil fuel industry wields. It is a true crime podcast about climate change, and it's absolutely incredible and important, and you truly have to check it out. Today's interview is going to focus in on the recently released third season, and you're going to learn a lot about the methods and devious tactics employed by fossil fuel companies for decades now to intentionally deceive and misdirect the public. You're not going to want to miss this interview. Amy is also the editor-in-chief of Drilled News. Drilled News is a website that features climate accountability reporting across multiple verticals, investigating the obstacles to action on climate change. It's an incredible website and resource, and you'll learn uh, a whole lot more about uh, what it has to offer. Bottom line is this. The fossil fuel industry has known for decades they were destroying the planet. And they chose to lie and value profits over human life. And Amy's work is exposing this truth clearly and profoundly. And I can't think of anything more important than that. Before we get into this enthralling interview with Amy, I have a quick announcement. As ATM Publishing, Across the Margins Publishing Imprint, released its latest book this week entitled Vanity Fair 1911 by the extremely talented Doran Shoemaker. Vanity Fair 1911 is a film-centric work of creative nonfiction that serves as an ode to silent-era cinema pioneer Helen Gardner, the first American actress to found and run a film production company. It is an inventive, captivating, and ultimately moving exploration of Helen Gardner's life and career, and I personally could not be more proud in being a part of bringing it to life. Vanity Fair 1911 is available at Across the Margin, Amazon, and uh, we'll be in bookstores shortly. Grab a copy. Uh, it is, uh, it's a special work. Also, just a quick reminder that Across the Margin Podcast is part of the Osiris Media Group. Head over to OsirisPod.com to check out the eclectic offerings of podcasts they have to offer. Uh, also, their schedule of live events is over there and much more. That's OsirisPod.com. And now, here's my interview with Amy Westervelt. Let's do it. So first off, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Love what you're doing, both with uh, the website and uh, the podcast. It's incredible. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, so I do want to get into, I'm, I'm Fully enamored with uh, season three of uh, Drilled, uh, the 
mad men of climate denial. And I want to get into some particulars. I'm really excited to talk about that. But I mean, before we go, uh, you know, into that, I want to, um, can you tell readers what they can find at Drilled News? Because the website's a very um, uh, important website and, and a great tool for learning a lot. So what's going on there? Yeah. So we, you know, for a long time, I've been kind of wishing that like almost every episode I do, I have many, many, many times more resources and reporting than what winds up in the episode. And it's, it's interesting stuff and it's useful, but it doesn't quite work in, you know, like a 20 minute podcast episode (laughs) or there's visuals that I wish I could, you know, share in some way or whatever. But, um, Mm-hmm. So, so initially we were kind of, I was kind of like, oh, I wish we had, you know, a bigger web presence. And then, uh, I also was talking to, um, the organization that was running climate liability news, which was kind of tracking all of the climate litigation that's been happening. And they were talking about sort of folding up shop, but they had this one reporter who has been tracking all these cases forever. And they were like, you know, I wish mm-hmm. there was some place that she could continue doing, you know, the reporting that she's been doing. And then at the same time, I, yeah. you know, was talking to um, Emily Atkin, who started Heated, about the need for sort of... Um, the very small handful of people that do what we call climate accountability reporting to sort of um, have almost like a central hub because what's been happening is like the national outlets are starting to get more interested in this space and um, they don't necessarily have people who've been on that beat for a long time. So there's a, there's a little bit of a like learning curve, you know, Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's sort of the genesis of Drilled News is to kind of like bring together uh, several of the people who were already doing this kind of reporting and to look at it in a little bit more um, uh, kind of holistic way so that we're not just looking at, you know, the fossil fuel companies and what they've been up to, but also mm-hmm. a lot of these other kind of big systemic blockers to action on climate change. So like... You know, for example, we have a story coming soon about um, some sort of systemic issues in the UN around dealing with climate change and how you figure out solutions when you have a a group that includes both um, people who are most impacted by climate change and people who are the biggest contributors (laughs) to climate change, you know? (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) So, um, so yeah. I just... I just read one um, about how separating climate change from the systems of injustice that uh, created it is actually climate denial. That was amazing. The, yes. There's that uh, recently, the fossil fuel funding of the anti-Greta. Uh, there's Yeah, there's just so much. And the, the different angles you uh, come from are just uh, compelling and important. It's great. Yeah. We also are going to... Um we're also working on a whole bunch of uh, kind of explainer pieces too that sort of get into, because mm-hmm. I think there's just a few, you know, even like I, I'm working on one now around fracking bans and what they actually are, because I think it's been really misinterpreted and mis misrepresented by the media as some sort of like immediate overnight thing where like, pipeline workers are going to show up and not have a job tomorrow, you know? <laughs> and, yeah. and for some that's, reason, that's the, not, that's not the case. No. And like, for some reason, the candidates haven't done a great job of explaining that. Um, I don't know whether it's like, you know, maybe their policy people haven't done a good job of explaining it to them either. I don't know. But anyway, 
Um, things like that. And then also kind of explaining the basis of a lot of these different climate cases that you're seeing and why you're seeing them now and all that kind Mm -hmm. of stuff too. So, um, so yeah, some background info, some breaking news stuff. And then the other, actually the big piece that, um, that I just felt like wasn't really happening anywhere else is the media accountability part because, um, you know, for some reason, a lot of like big outlets don't want to run stories on the media's role in delay on action. Yep. <laughs> yeah, you had the recent one about how certain publications uh, uh, enable the fossil fuel uh, industry. I was actually kind of surprised to see a couple of the names listed there and, yeah. you know, what you wrote about them. Yeah, of, of course, they're not going to point the finger right back at themselves. So that also shows why it is. Uh, super important that someone is pointing this out. You yeah, know? I know. It's weird because like I um, have had some back and forths with uh, New York Times reporters in particular about, you know, they're like, oh, you know, this is totally separate from editorial and it doesn't influence our edit side at all and this and that. And I was like, okay, but there's a bunch of stories that you guys aren't really covering in the like media and climate space because you're implicated in them, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> Yep. So, Absolutely. Yeah, of course. They're, they're dancing yeah. around it. Yeah. And it makes sense why they are. So, yeah, that, that kind of brings us right into um, the madman of climate denial because, yeah. I mean, it is. It does touch on those things with, with uh, you know, how the media is used as a tool, um, you know, to, to spread their message. Episode one uh, commences it, making it clear that propaganda by fossil fuel companies is, is nothing new, that they've been... Uh, pushing the narrative that fossil fuels are American as apple pie and any attack on them is an attack on their way of life. Um, how was this tactic uh, kind of birthed and, you know, how does it persist today? They, they've done such a good job of making it like, you know, the, not only is the fossil fuel industry sort of an integral part of American identity, but that like it's kind of this like fossil fuels, America, and capitalism equal democracy. (laughs) Yeah. That's such a shame. um, They they did such a good job of, of, uh, you know, ingraining that in people. And that's such a shame. It really is. I mean, you even see people, I see people all the time who are very, um, aggressively pursuing climate policy and climate action and, you know, really feel like we need to make big changes now who will still, kind of say, but we have to, you know, make sure that like the fossil fuel industry is okay. Or, you know, they need to have a seat at the table because, you Mm -hmm. know, you definitely want them involved. And, you know, and then other people will say, well, I don't know, they have never operated in good faith. So I'm not sure that we do need them at the table. And that scene is sort of like a radical idea. (laughs) Absolutely. Even just, I mean, (laughs) even just kind of um, criticizing capitalism was something that like really was a faux pas for, you know, for so long. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, really, it's it's interesting. Um, And, and very intentional. And that's the piece that we tend to focus on is like, look, you know, a lot of the ideas that you think you have about this industry and even how capitalism works because they they have also i mean they've done we'll get into this in a future episode but they've done quite a bit to shape ideas around um you know this kind of you can't have democracy without capitalism idea too uh-huh. and the, the particular brand of American free market capitalism that, um, I mean, you know, like in the, 
I think it's the 70s. Yeah, in the 70s and 80s, Phillips Petroleum, you know, put out a five-part video series um, that they distributed to uh, high schools in the U.S., as part of the economics curriculum. And more than half of the high schools in the U.S. in the 70s were using that curriculum to oh teach kids about how the economy works. Um, so That's like, just, ins- it's just totally insane. It's, it's, it's a form, it looks, sounds like a form of brainwa- brainwashing. It's totally insane. Yeah. And then, so it's like, I just think it's important for people to realize that when they hear someone who, you know, maybe went to high school during that decade, um, talking about the quote unquote economic realities of the energy system, where those ideas likely came from, you know, um, you can can trace that back. (laughs) Absolutely. That, that, that's, you know, influenced their train of thought there. That's scary. Yeah. 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 I found um I found it fascinating that um the link you drew between uh climate denial and big tobacco that was a big deal uh, in early on in this season um um how was it that big tobacco kind of championed a brand of science denial that um the fossil fuel was uh you know uh, uh you know found followed this blueprint from Yeah so that's an interesting one because there's been um, some great research done from Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway on uh, the the two the researchers who wrote Merchants of Doubt. They're um, science historians at Harvard, and they found this connection in the form of specific scientists who had worked for tobacco and then went to work for um, oil companies, not necessarily directly, but often um, for kind of, you know, think tanks that were trying to push climate mm-hmm. denial. And that, you know, that was super interesting. And everyone was like, what? And and then because of that, there kind of emerged this narrative that, oh, tobacco came up with all of these strategies, and then the oil industry copied them. And what we found is that that's not necessarily the case, that it's more that the two sort of evolved in tandem and influenced each other back and forth for a really uh, long time. Yeah. So a lot of the, um, you know, even actually the very first publicist, Ivy, Ivy Ledbetter Lee, worked for Standard Oil. Then he worked for American Tobacco. Edward Bernays, kind of right after him, who was Freud's nephew and like a big, big time propagandist. Um, <laughs> he, yeah, he, co- he coined also, the term you know, uh, public relations too, right? Yeah, exactly. He did. In fact, yeah. So the the term public relations was was a rebrand of propaganda when when uh-huh. the term propaganda started to have negative connotations. So that's <laughs> another thing that I think is good for people to know. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's been sort <laughs> of sanitized. Like, oh, it's just PR. It's fine. But you know, um, uh-huh. so yeah, Bernie's worked for you know American Tobacco, GM, Standard Oil. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. gave speeches to the American Petroleum Institute, kind of telling those guys how they should be thinking about their industry and how to get the public to think of them in a particular way and, um, you know, all of that. So uh, you kind of see this emerging over time and and then you get to John Hill in the, in mm-hmm. the 50s pulling together the, the Tobacco Industry Research Committee, which was all the big tobacco companies in a 
kind of fake nonprofit research group that was funding, you know, independent studies of the impacts of smoking at the very same time that he was running PR for the American Petroleum Institute. And in fact, he had these companies, you know, um, he he encouraged them to be part of both organizations. Um, and then you have, you know, the um, the folks at the Center for International Environmental Law dug up all kinds of documentation around how the oil industry kind of helped to um, really helped the tobacco industry to lie about the impacts of smoking. They they did um, the oil the oil companies did all the first tests for the cigarette companies on what exactly was in secondhand Whoa. smoke and what was in cigarette smoke and what they decided to do with that information was come up with a new product for themselves, the cigarette filter, because, um, there were, oh it was a good, God. good use of petrochemicals and plastic. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and they were like, Oh, you know what you guys should do? Come up with this thing that we all know won't really do anything, but we can tell people, you know, makes cigarettes healthier. <laughs> and, um, so yeah, this, this relationship goes back a really long way and it's very, um, it's very mutually beneficial. It's definitely not just, you know, one influencing the other. Mm-hmm. It's both of them influencing each other for, you know, a century. You just blew my mind with that origin of the, uh, cigarette filter right there. And then, crazy? And just, it's crazy. It's so insane. I know. And then... And then uh, just those two behemoths working hand in hand um, it, it, with their dastardly deeds, it just it, that's just crazy to me. So we hear a lot about fake news, and uh, we're going to kind of touch on a lot of tactics um, that that are is discussed in the season, and you know, disinformation campaign these days. And it seems like a lot of that the the, the fake news that we see, and you know, the the tactics they use to to kind of confuse us. That um, a great deal of that comes from the fossil fuel companies. Yeah. Yes. I yeah. kind of made this statement in season one that the the stuff that we think of as new today, you know, the misinformation campaigns uh-huh. and the bots and all of that stuff was is actually just sort of like, you know, the modern digital version of strategies that the fossil fuel guys cooked up years ago. And um, there's there's a lot of documentation of that. And we we get into a lot more of that in this season where, you know, this guy I mentioned before, Ivy Lee, he um, invented the press release. And in the course of that also uh, invented the whole, like really was the first person to be doing fake news and and invented even the whole kind of crisis actor approach to dealing with protests. So he was initially hired to deal with a protest at one of the Rockefeller family mines in Colorado. Mm -hmm. And the Rockefellers had responded to a big labor strike there by basically like sending in armed guards to light tents on fire and open up, you know, open machine gun fire on protesters (laughs) and had, you know, killed multiple people, including women and children. It was very bad press for them. And so Ivy Lee was brought in to help deal with this. And he sent out this press release claiming that the protesters were not even really workers at the mine, that they were union plants, crisis actors. Um, and, that, and that, uh, the whole thing had been orchestrated by mother Jones, who by the way is running a brothel. She was like 82 and very like physically infirm at the time. So mm-hmm. not likely. Um, 
And, you know, just he did this thing that um, that is very common still today and that uh, Naomi Oreskes talks about a lot too, this, this um, kind of surrounding lies with enough facts that it makes them believable. Um, so it's yeah. very clever, this mixing of lies and truth. And if what your if your goal is to sort of create doubt or create confusion, it's very it's a very effective tactic. Uh, so yeah, he started doing that more than a hundred years ago. And mm-hmm. we're still we're still dealing with it today. And and you know, sort of each generation of of uh oil industry pr guy has just added on to that with more sophisticated tactics and um and they really spawned quite a bit of the things that you're seeing um you know the trump administration and and other kind of authoritarian uh government folks around the world use in fact i mean ivy lee uh gave advice to hitler you know? <laughs> I was just I was just about to kind of I was kind of going to go that way because the oil Nazi propaganda triangle you talk about that he was he was yes. working with uh, he was working with Hitler it's wild yes so did Bernays <laughs> um, yeah Edward Bernays oh, right. Ivy yes. Lee all of these guys were mm-hmm. um, you know yes they um, their their you know writings and books were on Hitler's bookshelves they had meetings with him and Goebbels and you know. Um, yeah. In fact, Bernays actually like in one of his um, kind of essays later on sort of complains about how Hitler gave propaganda a bad name. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. It, I, I hate laughing at this stuff because it's so scary. But that's that's I mean, that's hysterical in, in, in its own way. Yeah. Bernays was interesting, too. Uh, not only was he bringing back this idea of propaganda from World War Two, but he also uh he was. He learned from his uncle was Sigmund Freud, and he implemented some of his um, ideas. And uh, what, what what were some of those that he kind of brought to the table after you know thinking about his uncle's ideas? Yeah, he's fascinating because he um, you know he sort of grew up talking about all kinds of behavioral psychology theories, and um, and then. He worked with actually the government's propaganda arm uh, during World War One and saw how effective these tactics could be at a mass scale. And that's really what made it click for him was like, oh, all this stuff that I know about how individual psychology works can be applied to control the masses. And Bernays, like, this was a this was like a whole thing during his, you know, kind of formative years amongst kind of the the public intellectual set this idea mm-hmm. that you know um democracy was like okay but kind of dangerous because it meant that you would have to figure out some way to control sort of the unwashed masses you know <laughs> that like yes, um and this yes. is i think this is um Actually, um, I don't know if you know the podcast scene on radio, but they're doing a really great season right now about American, you know, democracy and what it, you know, what it actually is and where it came from. And they get into some mm-hmm. of this too. That I think people forget that really, like when when people when the the sort of initial colonizers came to America and wanted to set up a quote unquote democracy, what they wanted was for wealthy white landowners to be able to have power without being aristocrats. That was their version of democracy. They did not want uh, everyone to have a vote. <laughs> like that was 
nope, not, that nope, was like exactly. not their <laughs> idea of a good time, you know? And so almost immediately you see a lot of, of, um, you know, kind of wealthy landowners and particularly kind of these captains of industry that emerge in the early 20th century, um, are starting to, you know, worry about how do we, how do we control these people while making them think mm-hmm. that they have control over their lives? Yeah. And Bernays was very into this idea, um, and used all kinds of tactics. So he, you know, he, um, like the most famous kind of example of his work was um, getting women to smoke and thereby, you know, sort of doubling the tobacco industry's market overnight. <laughs> That's so such a good his, story. That's in uh, episode six with uh, the Torches of Freedom episode, like yes, the Torches, Torches of Freedom, of Freedom. idea. That, that's, uh, yes. that, that was absolutely stunning yes. to learn about that. Yeah. He, I mean, his thing was fake events to create news, co-opting movements already in existence. That's co-opting uh, movements was, is <laughs> such a big one. They've done, they've, it's yeah. been such an effective strategy and you see it today. Like you see, um, I constantly see oil companies, for example, pushing like what they, I think like their version of identity politics, you know, where they're like, we're like into diversity and like women empowering women in STEM <laughs> and you know, whatever. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's wild. Yeah. I mean, um, even, um, the idea and it's, uh, when you're talking about, I think it's Daniel Edelman, the idea yeah. of um, astroturfing with with fake um, grassroots yes. groups, and that's I mean that kind of is along those lines as well. Yep. Yeah. The fake the fake acti- yeah. activism. That's yeah. Yeah. That's totally. Stuff. Totally. Um, and so yeah, he well Daniel Edelman while while we're there he had um he had that idea of marketing public relations. Can you speak on that a little bit? That that was fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So he. Um, you know, he kind of looked at PR as, you know, kind of like a 360 degree thing that like you couldn't just Mm -hmm. focus on how your client was being perceived in the press that you had to like really, um, you had to, and, and really this is kind of very much in the, the tradition of Bernays, you had to be creating news for them, for the media to cover. You couldn't just wait for the media to pick up a story and make, and, you know, make sure that your client was, you know, trained and ready to go. You had to sort of actively pursue the media and in doing so kind of like, you know, create spectacle for them to cover. And so he, um, he actually was the first the person to do a media tour. So he, uh, and, and he did it to create um, local press because he was like, well, this story might not get picked up by the national news, but if we mm-hmm. do a bunch of, you know, if we take it all around the country, the local newspapers, you know, have less to talk about than the national newspapers. <laughs> so they'll pick up the story. And it, it worked. It totally worked. And then he, and then that led into, you know, we have to get involved in local and state politics because mm-hmm. uh, policy impacts our clients too. And part of public relations is not just the public, but also policymakers. And then he, mm-hmm. they actually also invented um, litigation PR. So doing public relations on behalf of people who are, you know, in court for some reason or another, kind of making their case in the, the sort of sphere of, of public influence as a way to influence trial outcomes too. So, um, great guy. And, 
Oh, it's truly, it is this grouping of people, these madmen of climate denial. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's some of, some of their tactics. They're so disturbing, but they're, I mean, they're impressive in a way. I mean, this is high level manipulation. Well, that's the thing. This is, yes. And this is something that we get into in this season too, is that a lot of these guys were, and Daniel Edelman is certainly one of them, were trained by U.S. military intelligence. These are not dumb people. These are highly intelligent people with a very sophisticated understanding of human psychology and how to weaponize that understanding. And they largely went to work on behalf of industry because that's, I guess, who could afford to pay them. Where the money was. Um, Yeah. You know, you don't, you don't really see it. I mean, it's interesting because in the sixties and seventies, you start to see these social movements and they're starting to use some of these, these tactics. And, uh, it almost kind of catches industry on, on their back foot because they're so used to being the ones who know how to manipulate the masses and know how to like, you know, get a message out and tap into people's emotions and all of this stuff that they're kind of like, wait, what? Like, we're the bad guys now? No. And then they very quickly kind of learn how to paint themselves with the activist paintbrush. And you see yeah. a lot more of this, you know, the astroturfing stuff and these sort of fake citizen rights groups and, you know. Uh, yeah, my favorite one of those is um, the Save the Plastic Bag Coalition. Uh huh. Go on. Because you know, there's all these people that are so amped up about plastic bags that they're taking the time to form a coalition. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, yeah. It's it's like the 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 the, the excess outrage over that is just unbelievable. That uh, so that just crazy. turned here in New York. Yeah, you, you I know. Can hear it I saw all the stories in, about New York um, here. Yes, yeah. I saw that. There were all these like people, like, oh, what about this? And then I saw like some California people, like some I saw on Twitter, like some woman in California was like, you know, just keep the bags in your car, and everyone in New York yeah. was like, fuck I saw I saw the same thing. It's just amazing <laughs> that little um, inconvenience is something you get used to. People people get so upset about. Um, I know. I it's know. These, these spin masters. These spin. It's like I said. These spin masters are really really incredible. One more thing I want to talk about. Just all these tactics just fascinate the heck out of me. Um, is language and uh, to go back yes. a little bit to. Um, Ivy led uh, led better Lee. Um, he was smart in that he knew the importance of language and of um, tightly controlled language, and you know that that you know resonates today. Uh, um, and, and you know, in the language we use for climate change, can you can you speak yep. on that a little bit? That fascinated me yeah. a bunch. Yeah, totally. He was really, really um, good at kind of helping his clients reframe issues basically like reframe mm-hmm. themselves as victims using language so like yeah. he represented the railroad companies and at one point um there there were a lot of of train accidents in the US and um the press was mostly and the and the public in general kind of mostly assumed that these accidents were because of negligence on behalf of the railroads and they it they often were so there was a mm-hmm. push to um sort of require them to have a certain number of staff and to, you know, take some pretty basic safety precautions. But the industry saw this as a huge cost to them and a burden and yeah. whatever. And so, um, mm-hmm. so Ivy Lee helped them come up with the idea of calling these, um, 
these way it was a safety worker requirements or something like that that the mm-hmm. government had had called them and he was like you know um you, we should call them you know worker fees and like mm-hmm. uh you know worker regulations and things like that just to sort of use these words that that make it easy for people to understand oh like this is a burden on the industry and he um and he called them extra staff requirements instead of like just you know, staffing requirements. You know, that he's like, you know, you can you can do these little slight things that make um, that kind of help to make the case for you that these are uh, burdensome requirements versus necessities. And um, you know, at the time, because again, you know, he was the first person to even do a press release or to encourage his clients to talk to the press at all. Before that, there had been a very adversarial relationship between industry and the press. And there was, uh, you know, kind of, you mostly had these sort of muckraker journalists who investigated industry. Mm -hmm. And industry basically just didn't ever want to talk to journalists and and tried to sort of hide everything. And Lee's kind of stroke of genius was to say, no, like use transparency to your benefit. And so, so it was very easy for him to shift language. And then, then you see that with climate change, you know, years later where you have scientists calling it initially the greenhouse effect, which when you think about it is quite a good evocative uh, phrase, you know, everyone knows mm-hmm. what a greenhouse is, um, that you go in there and you're kind of hot and, you know, yeah. and then, then it turns into global warming. And then Frank Luntz comes around and says, you know, actually, if we call it climate change, it sounds more natural. Um, and yeah. so kind of encouraged, uh, Republican politicians in particular to start using that terminology, which then makes it so interesting that now finally in, you know, 2019, you have newspapers saying, we're going to call it the climate crisis or we're going to call it a climate yes. emergency. Taking it and back. I, yep. I mean, I actually saw on listservs that I'm on with climate journalists, you know, saying them saying like, oh, this just this feels like editorializing, you know, and we should just call it climate change, not realizing that the term climate change was also was given to them by a GOP operative, you know? Yeah, <laughs> so. that was that was our that, yeah, that was manipulated as well. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and also yeah. the idea of manipulating the language, not only, you know, did he get them, um, I mean, start talking to press, but also companies hiring staff, kind of becoming their own press, journalists helping yes, to explain exactly. themselves to the people in yes. advertorials. It's, it's all so mm-hmm. intense. That's something, I mean, that's a, I'm, I'm very grateful for um, uh, uh, your podcast because, I mean, you know, I, I think a lot of us are coming to grips with some of these um, schemes that are being used. But, I mean, with the how researched uh, this is and, and you can get your head around just uh, what they're trying to do in, yeah. a, in a larger way. And that's just so important. And, and I thank you for that. And I'm, that's, I'm so happy to uh, talk about it more here and spread the word. It's really incredible. Thank you. Yeah, I just I I want to just say one more thing about that and we're going to get into Please. this in a a future episode too, but the um the sort of un- very unfortunate part of all of this is that I think um one of the one of the sort of successes that these strategies <laughs> have had is to really undermine credibility in the media. So it's this kind of double-edged thing of using the media's credibility to their benefit and then 
pushing it so far that they undermine the credibility of the media. So now they, so now they no longer need the media's uh, credibility. You know, um, they no longer wow. need the media to to say, oh, you know, this company is good or this company is bad or whatever, um, because th- we've now gotten to a place where a substantial portion of the population think that you know. The newspaper is not to be believed, and yep. <laughs> that, that's 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 know, terrifying. Um, that's that's wild. That's that coin that yeah. that flip that that one eighty you're speaking of. You know, manipulate the media and then kind of take away their uh, their strength. That's that's exactly. that's powerful. Exactly. Oh, yeah. My goodness. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, as fascinating as all this stuff is, it's really terrifying too. It's it's really, but it's so important <laughs> to know. It's really really important to know. And I, I love getting all these backstories and kind of finding out who all these um, people behind it are. And it's it's yeah. just, it's it's a wild ride. So yeah. uh, hey, so thank you for uh, for the podcast for all the information thanks out there. Love what you're doing. Drill, drilled news, yeah. of course. And um, yeah, thanks for coming on. Yay, thank you. Thanks for um, reading and listening and having me on. I appreciate it. I think um, it's important for people to just like know, I think, that this this is all kind of going on in the background. It helps to make, you know, just be a critical thinker when you're reading things. You know? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. When you know kind of what they're trying to do, you can you can kind of sift through things in a more educated way. And that's that's yeah. important these days. It's a lot. Of, there's a lot out there in the ether that's uh trying yep. to make us think and feel different ways. So thank you for your part and, uh, and, and, and helping us uh, see the world in a different way. <laughs> thank you. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com.